Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for revealing that love to us in Christ. And Father, as we come to your word, we want to ask that by your Holy Spirit, we are caused to see things we haven't seen before and drawn closer in our walk with you. Father, thank you for loving us in Jesus. Amen. Well, it's good to see each one of you here today. We're thankful you've chosen to be with us this morning. We are continuing in our series in Mark. So if you would turn to Mark chapter 4, that's where we're going to be today. Mark chapter 4, verse 26 is where we begin, and we're going to go down through 520. And in this passage, we're going to look at four things. We're going to look at two parables, the last two parables in the book of Mark. The first one is uh, the parable of the growing seed, and the second one is the parable of the mustard seed. And then thirdly, we're going to look at Jesus calming a storm, and fourthly, we're going to look at his uh, healing uh, a demon-possessed man. So first off, we're going to look at the parable of the growing seed. Now, these are third and fourth of the four parables in Mark. You remember the first sermon we talked about in this series? We talked that Mark was a, a man of action. He, he doesn't see Jesus sitting around very long. Forty-one times he uses the, the term straightway or immediately. He shows Jesus as having come on a mission and getting to that mission. And so he doesn't include as many of the parables as some of the other Gospels. And that's one of the things that I I really like about this. Jesus has many different voices appealing to and speaking to many different ears in the group. Um, there are a lot of folks who are going to appreciate the speed and the action that we see in Mark, but there are going to be others who are going to appreciate Luke and his detail and his calm approach far much, uh, so much more. And that's why God makes sure that there are all kinds of voices bringing the gospel to uh, the world because there are so many different ways that people like to hear. And so we're going to deal this morning with this parable. First off, the parable of the growing seed is found only in Mark. And in verse 26 it says, And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Now the purpose of the parables is to explain in common daily terms the kingdom. This is what it's like to, to experience the kingdom. And he puts it in terms clear enough that if you want to, you can understand this thing. And when he's talking about the kingdom, I, I like to remember that the kingdom is defined by the king. The kingdom is anywhere that the king reigns. Uh, Spain is a kingdom. It has a king. His name is King Philippe VI. He, he replaced Prince Juan Carlos de Bourbon of Spain. But it, it, King Philippe is the king of Spain, and Spain exists only where he rules. If he doesn't rule, then that's not Spain. If he rules, that is Spain. Anywhere he rules. And the same is true for us. The kingdom is the king. And anywhere that Jesus, who is the king, rules, that is his kingdom. Now we need to be careful that we don't get frustrated with folks who are not in the kingdom for not living by the principles of the kingdom. We get frustrated at the world because they just act like pagans when in reality... They're pagans. <laughs> They're doing what they're paid to do. You know, we shouldn't be surprised by that. And friends, if we want to see the kingdom established in the world, the first place that it has to be established is in our own hearts. Because we have no room to talk about what goes on in the world around us if he isn't king of our anger, if he is not king of our fear, if he's not king of our egotism or our greed. That's where the king begins his rule. It is in us establishing his kingdom in us. And the king in, the, in this parable is the one who goes out to 
verse 26, scatters seed on the ground. Then look what he does next there in verse 27. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. That's interesting. He just goes about his daily business. He doesn't sit there with a magnifying glass, a microscope, watching that seed. How many of you plant a seed and then dig it up every morning just to see how it's doing? Oh, I would never do something as foolish as that. How many of us check our investments every day? How many of us are constantly hounding at our kids? I've told you. I've already told you what Jesus wants you to do. Why aren't you doing it? How many of us continue, continually check the investment of the kingdom we've placed in other people's lives, demanding faster results? Instead of just going to sleep at night, getting up in the day, and trusting to the seed and the earth to do what only they can do. Now, up in 4.3, it says that the, the sower went out to sow. That is the responsibility of the sower. Just get the word out there. And once we get the word out there, and it, it landed in places that it, it shouldn't order to land. You know, it's not going to grow there. Just get the word out. That's not our problem. It's not our responsibility. Just get the word out there and entrust to the seed and to the soil to do what only it can do. And that way we can just get some sleep at night. It's not ours to worry about. Amen? You know the difference between being buried and planted? You, you, you bury dead things, right? You plant things that have life hidden inside of them. The difference between being buried and planted is the life inside the seed. And friends, the Word of God is the seed. (laughs) Throw it out there and let it do what only it can do in ways that we will not understand. But look at what happens. Look at what happens over time with absolutely no worry on the part of the farmer. Look in verse 28. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And isn't it frustrating sometimes how slow this whole thing can be? Isn't it frustrating how glacial it can be? God, when are you going to bring change in the lives of those around me? I'm really tired of them. And when you get busy doing your job, I'll sure appreciate it. But friends, it happens. It happens slowly. Not only in the lives of those around us, but also in our own lives. How many times have you looked at where you were a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, and look at where you are today? And isn't God doing a good work? And friends, that He doesn't do it overnight. We cannot afford to be worried about that. I, I've, been, I've been following Jesus for 50 years. That's a scary thought. 50, and, and I'm still seeing, still learning, still growing. And every one of us who have followed Jesus for any amount of time would have to recognize this is a, this is a lifetime process. It really does, the old saying, take a lifetime to make a man of God. And it's okay to be comfortable with that. I, I'm, 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 getting, I'm, I'm continuing to grow. And that's okay. Until one day, look in verse 29, when the grain is ripe, that day does come at once. He puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The farmer knows when it's time to bring in the harvest. It is our responsibility to put the word out there, to rest in it doing what it and the soil knows how to do. And the day of harvest will manifest the benefit. So first off, we have the parable of the growing seed. Secondly, we have the parable of the mustard seed. Look there in verse 30. He said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shades. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. 
He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. How many of you have ever been in on the beginning of something? Beginning of a business, beginning of a church, beginning of a marriage, beginning of a relationship, beginning of a job, and, and you want it to be perfect day one. And then, and then you wake up. Right? I slept and dreamed that life was beauty. Woke and found it. It was beauty. And friends, what he's letting us know is that don't worry about how small it is. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. He said in Zechariah 4, Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. Businesses start small. There's a reason that they say Rome wasn't built in a day. The kingdom of God might take longer than what we want it to to come to full stature, but friends, it will grow and it will provide home for all sorts of birds, some of, them which, some of which are going to make deposits on your shoulder you might not appreciate. But friends, it takes time to grow a tree. It takes time to grow a tree. You can go plant a squash seed in you know, a few months, three, four months, you're going to have squash. And that squash is great for a meal. But you can't hang a swing on the branches of a squash vine. If you want a place to hang a swing, you're going you're to have to give it some time. And friends, when Jesus, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, it did not look good for the movement that he had come to establish. He had one disciple and his mother, and you can't discount your mother. They're supposed to be there for you, right? Didn't look good. But give that thing some time. And it has grown, and it is growing. You know, back in the 60s and 70s, the Jesus movement, the the primary message of the Jesus movement was, Jesus is coming back, and it could be today, and you better get ready. The problem with that was that Jesus failed to sync his Google calendar with ours. And we don't appreciate that. Made us look like we didn't know what we're talking about. You want to know why? Because we didn't know what we were talking about. And there are a lot of folks who, this is taking so long, they lose hope, they lose heart. But friends, when we look at the ten virgins, the five wise and the five unwise, the five unwise virgins were unwise because not because Jesus came so fast, but because it says in Matthew 25, He delayed His coming. And it took longer than they anticipated And friends, that the kingdom is taking a while to move and advance in this place. That it's taking a while to move and advance in your life. A while in the lives of your friends and your family. Don't you worry about it. The kingdom is growing. It is advancing. And it is a safe place to find a roost. First off, we have the kingdom, the the parable of the growing seed. Secondly, we have the parable of the mustard seed. Thirdly, we have Jesus calms a storm. Now, there's a study called the Harmony of the Gospels, and what it does is it meshes the four Gospels like teeth on gears with one another to find out how all of these things match up. And in the Harmony of the Gospels, there's one day that's called a busy day for Jesus. This is it. We are at the beginning now of a busy day for Jesus. Because there are four things that happen here. We're going to look at the first two of them. And then Pastor Kevin's going to deal with the last two of them next week. But four things in this one day that you look at him and you go, wow. I mean, if you're going to get some work done, that's the way to do it, right? Those four things are, this first one, he calms the storm. The second one is he delivers the demoniac. The third one is he, he heals the woman with the issue of blood. And the fourth one is he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Now... When he calmed the sea, he showed his power, he showed his authority over what? 
He showed his power over nature, didn't he? When he healed the demoniac, when he delivered the demoniac, he showed his power over the devil himself. When he healed the woman with the issue of blood, he showed his power over sickness. And when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, he showed his power over So you got power over nature, power over the devil, power over sickness, and power over death. What are you facing that is bigger than any of those? Friends, the glory of the busy day of Jesus is there's nothing (laughs) that he can't handle. Look in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. Let's look at a map real quick. Here's our map of Israel, and you have the, the Sea of Galilee up there in the top, and there's the Dead Sea, and the Jordan River connects them. There's the Sea of Galilee. Over on the east side is this purple section called Decapolis. It really should be a little farther north. On this particular map, they're trying to show a political boundary for the Tetrarchy of Philip. But Jesus has been over on the west side there at Capernaum, on the northwest side of the sea, and he says, we're going across. And what they're going to do is they're going to land in that district called Decapolis. Now, Decapolis means, what does Deca mean? Ten. And what does Polis mean? Cities. It's a confederation of ten cities. It's a political district of ten cities. One of those cities is Gadara, which is listed right there in the green section. Like I say, the purple should come on farther up. And... Um, when Jesus crossed the, the Sea of Galilee, he goes over to the east side. He looks at him and says, let's go across. Well, most of, so many of his disciples are fishermen, and fishermen own boats. That's the Kia of the day, right? And they found one of those boats a few years ago buried in the Sea of Galilee, and they've raised it up, and it's on display now, the Jesus boat. But he looks at him and he says, let's go to the other side. Have you ever wondered, look down at verse 40, have you ever wondered why I got frustrated with him and said, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Well, why is he chastising them? What did he tell them in verse 35? Where are we going? We're going to the other side. When Jesus says you're going to the other side, where are you going? You're going to the other side. And they have no faith. Why? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God has just said, we're going to the other side. But they get in the middle of it, and there's a canyon up on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. It runs east and west, and it just funnels uh, temperature variations from the west across the Sea of Galilee and turns it into a churning mass. You get out in the middle of that thing, these storms happen regularly because of that one canyon there. Well, Jesus knew that. He wasn't, he wasn't shocked by any of this. But his statement is, we're going to the other side. And friends, how many times has he told you, we're going to the other side, and halfway there, with all of the difficulties, you go, oh, Jesus, where are you now? And friends, when Jesus looks at us in Matthew 28, says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, when is he going to be with you? Always. When he said in Hebrews, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, where will he be with you? Where? Everywhere. And friends, when he said in Revelation 1-7, fear not, I am the first and the last, I am the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. When he looks at us and says, don't fear, what do we really need to be afraid of? Friends, he's faced it all. He's faced death and won. What else is there? And he says, I'm with you. Jesus says, let's go to the other side. That means get your passport because we are going over there. Look in verse 36. 
And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What a question that is. Here he is, God, ensconced in glory, leaves the glory of heaven, enters the darkness of humanity for the express purpose of inviting us into a relationship with him, and they look at him and say, don't you care? Jesus has asked this question two times. One is here when they think they're about to die, and the other one is over in Luke chapter 10 when he'd gone out there to visit with Mary and her sister Martha and her brother Lazarus. You remember that? And Martha's in the kitchen busy getting the deviled ham ready and making the deviled eggs. and She wants to make sure lunch is ready. And there's Mary sitting at Jesus' feet doing nothing but just worshiping. And the Bible says that she burst in upon them. That's what that word means. Inner talking, inner angry. She just burst in upon them. And she looks at Jesus in Luke ten forty. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Doesn't that pretty well cover the two times we wonder if Jesus cares at all when we think we're about to die and when we think we're the only ones? Jesus, I'm dying here. I'm dying here emotionally or physically or spiritually. I'm, I'm dying financially. Where, where, don't you care that I'm going? Yeah, He cares. And then when we think we're the only ones, I'm, I'm the only one that's really preaching. The God. I'm the only one that really knows. I'm, don't you care that nobody's helping me? We kind of do the same thing. But you know what's interesting? Peter, who was one of these guys in the boat, a few years later wrote something else about caring. And he used that same word in 1 Peter 5 when he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cast all of your cares on him. Why? Because what? He cares for you. Now, those are two different words in that verse. The first one can be translated anxieties. It's the word for distractions. What is it that pulls you away from Jesus? What is it that takes your peace and rest away from his constant care? What is it? I want you to cast that on him. Why? Because then the second word, he cares for you. That means he is vitally involved. He is wrapped up in it. It's, it's those T-zone gears meshing with one another. It's, it's a transmission turning at 5,000 RPM. And then we come with the question of don't you care? And it's like throwing a monkey wrench into that thing and watching the sparks fly. How can you ask that? What do you mean, don't I care? Peter looks at us and says, yeah, he cares. He is vitally involved in our lives. Look in verse 39, what does he do? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Imagine that. Half awake, he still has morning hair going on. He hadn't had his coffee. And with a word, he looks at the sea and says, be still. And immediately, it's calm. No more wind, no more waves breaking into the boat. It's completely calm at a word. Suddenly, the Sea of Galilee was smoother than a fresh jar of Skippy. Don't believe me? Just watch. Come on. Verse 41. More people got that in the second service than in the first service. I'll just throw that out there. I'll explain it tomorrow. (laughs) 
Verse 41. Look at the result. They were filled with great fear and said one of Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Folks, these are a bunch of hardened sailors. Man, these men work. They, they know what it means to be in a scary situation. They've, they've seen these storms before and they're going to see them again. They've survived them and, and they look at this thing and they're just shocked at what's just happened. And it's about here that I start to wonder about those guys up in verse 36 where it says, and other boats were with him. I think that's a fascinating statement. I wonder what they were thinking. I doubt very seriously they heard Jesus calm the storm. I mean, this is a loud ruckus going on. There's no telling how far away they are. But there were other boats with him. And Jesus calmed the storm. And I wonder if they looked at each other and went, well, that was weird. Some of those other participants in the Bible, they fascinate me. But friends, after these disciples have been with Jesus for upwards of a year and a half, they still look at one another and go, who on earth is this guy that even the wind and the sea obey his voice? They still didn't get it. We still haven't seen Peter's confession in Matthew 16, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. We still haven't seen that. They're still wondering who he is. They've been with him. They've seen everything he's done for over a year and a half, and they still don't get it. Would it be possible for us to be a little more patient with ourselves and with those around us who don't understand him as fully as we think they ought to just yet? This is a process, and he is moving us through it. We have the parable of the growing seed. We have the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus calms the storm, and then fourthly, he heals the demon-possessed man. In five, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Let's look at our map again. This district of Decapolis really should extend up farther onto the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Over on the east side of the Sea of Galilee is what's called the Golan Heights now. You've heard about that in the news. And when Jesus got out of the boat, he was up on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And there was a guy there who was probably from Gadara, which is down here to the south of the Sea of Galilee. And... Um, living up there near Gergesa, and was demon-possessed. And uh, we, we assume that he's a Gentile, and we know that this is Gentile country because of what they were planning to have for breakfast the next morning. What are they herding here? And ain't mutton. <laughs> They're herding pigs, and they're not allowed in Israel. And if he was Gentile, then there were probably only two Gentiles in Jesus' ministry who received a miracle from him, this guy and the Syrophoenician woman, daughter. So let's look at what happens here in verse 2. It says, When Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Sounds like your last experience in... Nursery work, doesn't it? Verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, crying out with a loud voice. He said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. 
Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. This man's plight is terrible. He's in a horrible, horrible situation. But look in verse 13. With a word, he gave, so he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Their stock took a dive that day. <laughs> a ripple of dissatisfaction moved across the room. You know, there are very few incidents in the life of Jesus that they feel like they can actually pinpoint exactly where it happened. This is one of them. It's over on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and there, there's just one cliff over there, and they believe that this is very probably exactly where this took place. And, you know, we look at this, and, and we go, well, I'm being spiritually harassed. There's so much spiritual warfare going on. Friends, it's, it's very real. It's a very real possibility. These things actually absolutely do happen. But here's the message of this busy day of Jesus. He is still stronger. <laughs> it doesn't matter what's bothering you. Jesus is still stronger. And we can count, sit back and count how many demons there are bothering me every day. Oh, it's so terrible. I want you to remember something. When those demons fell, those created beings that were angels, and they fell and became demons, there was a third of them that fell. How many does that mean were left behind? For every one you see, there are two that aren't. And Hebrews chapter 1 says that those angels are sent as ministering spirits to minister to those who are going to inherit salvation. Are you, are you going to inherit salvation? Are you inheriting it right now? Then there are ministering spirits intended for you. And we can be worried about the, the demon that's hiding behind the bush to try and ambush our day. Or we can look just a little bit farther and see those two that are on our side that are looking at him saying, you know, you just don't have as much power as you think you do. In this busy day of Jesus, it teaches us there is nothing too difficult for Jesus. Look in verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Boy, we'd like to see a little more of that in the church sometimes, wouldn't we? Clothed and in their right mind. And they were afraid. There's one of the great understatements of the Bible. You know, this would freak a lot of us out. A lot of us have never seen anything like this. They were afraid. Verse 16, And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. I wonder if they went over to the cliff and looked over at all that floating bacon down there. Wondering how they can rescue that bacon. And they began to beg Jesus, verse 17, to depart from their region. Isn't that fascinating? They were scared so badly, they didn't even want Jesus around. Just go home. We would rather have our demons that we are familiar with than the power that you bring that is freaking us out right now. We would rather have our demons, our unrest, our difficulty, our misery than the deliverance that you're bringing and the mysteries and the responsibilities that might come with it. You're scaring us to death. And friends, there, there are a lot of folks today that are very similar to this. This is the meaning of that, that old expression, better the devil you know. I, I may be miserable, but I know this kind of misery. If I go do what you're talking about, I don't know if I'll be worse or better off. I'd rather stick with the misery that I know. And 
there are a lot of folks who are familiar with their misery and they don't know what it'd be like not. Who am I going to be if I don't have misery? Friends, that's why Jesus looked at the guy at the pool of Bethesda and said, do you want to get well? Some people don't want to get well. And we need to be okay with that. That they want to have chaos in their life does not mean that I have to be sucked into it. Some people would rather stay miserable in their oppression because they're familiar with it than run the risk of freedom. But look at the guy who's been set free. Look at what he does in verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I think that's interesting. How many times has Jesus walked up to somebody and said, You, you follow me. Leave your nets. Leave, leave your family. Oh, I've got to bury my daddy. If you're not willing to leave your family, you're not worthy. Of, I, 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 if, if you put your hand to the plow and you, you look back, you're not worthy of the kingdom. I want you to leave everything. Leave your table. Leave your income. Leave your family. And you, come follow me. And here's a guy comes running up to him and says, Man, I want to follow you. I want to go to your church. And Jesus looks at him and says, No. You know, we, we, I thought about it. Nah. I wonder if this guy had rejection issues. Made him feel all bad about himself because Jesus said no. Apparently not, because look in verse 20. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. I love that verse, especially when it comes to holidays. <clears throat> because holidays, when we get together with family, when we get together with friends, when we get together with whoever it is, how many times does Thanksgiving at the beginning of the day end up to rejoicing at the end of the day because now they're going home? And the arguments can finally stop. But friends, it's interesting what he told this guy to do and what he didn't tell him to do. He didn't tell him to go home and argue with folks. Didn't tell him to go home and prove to your crazy uncle and your atheist neighbor how wrong they are. Didn't say go convince your cousin that they're wrong and you're right and you're there with them and not with us. He didn't say go home and pick a fight about things you don't know what you're talking about anyway. Quit, quit arguing about when Jesus is going to come. Don't worry about how he created things. He's in charge of both of those. And yet how many times do we get in an argument about things that just aren't what Jesus told us to talk about? He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and just do this real simple thing. Just tell folks what God has done for you. How He has had mercy on you. Because friends, there's no arguing with that. There's no arguing with, I used to not have peace, but now I have peace. There's no arguing with that. There's no arguing with, I used to have guilt and I couldn't go to sleep at night because of my sin, but I've been forgiven and I can sleep at night. There's no arguing with that. There's no arguing with, well, I had all these broken relationships, but they're better now. There are a lot of times we get wrapped up in things that we just don't know what we're talking about. You know, Job was, Job was arguing with those folks and God looks at him in, in Job chapter 35 and says, where, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line? You don't know what you're talking about. And Deuteronomy 29 says there's a distinction between the hidden things and the revealed things. And we need to be okay with that distinction. There are some things that He has not revealed to us. There are mysteries that He holds on to. And friends, He's big enough to hold mysteries without bothering us with it and still be involved in our lives. It's okay to not know. 
He said in Deuteronomy 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Why? That we may do all the words of this law. Friends, it's not your job to convince all of your crazy relatives and agnostic friends that they're wrong and you're right. He just said, just go home and tell folks. Go home and tell your friends. That's interesting to me also. Because how many of you are closer to friends in the kingdom than you are to your blood relations? It's okay. You go home and tell your friends. Just tell folks what the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. Friends, I wonder what happened, What might happen this Thanksgiving if instead of arguing with the crazies, instead of trying to convince the atheists that they are going to hell, if we, instead of picking a fight with them, we just share with them, this is what Jesus has done for me. There's no arguing with that. There's no arguing with that. We don't have to convince everybody of how wrong they are and how right we are. It didn't say tear them down and then they'll get saved. Jesus said in John 12, if you lift me up, I'll draw all people to myself. Just if we just lift him up. We've talked several times about some of the folks around town that we minister to and with and are in the various restaurants we go to and they'll call us every now and then or text us with a prayer request. And so, yeah, we'll pray. Had a guy recently, his mother's in Wisconsin and gone down to Missouri and got sick, ended up in the hospital, surgery and on two and a half life support systems. Don't know if she's going to live. Here she is, 65 years old. Now they're saying she might die, and I'm scared to death. I don't know what to do because I can't get there. I said, well, buddy, you want me to pray for you? Well, yeah, that'd be great. What do you want me to pray? I'd like to pray that Jesus would heal her. I said, okay, that's what we're going to pray. And whenever it was, the next time I went in, five, seven days later, how's your mother? She's off life support. They're talking about letting her out and sending her home. And friends, that's the, time we, that's the time we follow up on this by saying Jesus is the one who healed her. We asked Jesus to heal her. Jesus touched her body. Now we've got to be thankful to Jesus. He's inviting you into a relationship with Him. What will you say? We just tell them what Jesus did. Friends, we don't have to prove how wrong they are. We just tell them how good Jesus is. And you, you know, you don't have to defend Christianity and you don't have to defend Jesus. He's big enough to defend Himself. He, he, he stood up to the Pharisees, he stood up to the Romans, he stood up to death, and he beat every one of them. He can handle your crazy uncle. <laughs> what would happen if we quit trying to defend him and just decided to proclaim him? But we, we like to let people know how much we know. You know what's interesting? It's an old and corny cliche, but it's true. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Just share with them what you have, and that's Jesus. This man begged that he might be with him. I wonder if Jesus looked at him and said, Nah, you got the real deal. Now go tell somebody about it. And we looked at that and just appalled, but he hadn't been trained. He hadn't had evangelism training yet. He hadn't been to, we, 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 can't, we can't let him go out there and tell people about Jesus. We hadn't trained him yet. Hadn't been through our, our school yet. We got a training. You know what? There are a lot of us sitting in this room who would use that as an excuse to say, well, I just don't know that I have the answers yet. It is totally appropriate and is completely okay when someone brings you a question that you don't know the answer to, to just, here's your weird and wild idea. Be honest and say, I don't have a clue. I have no clue. I don't know. But here's what I do know. Jesus has changed my life. There's peace now and there used to not be. Over in John chapter 9, they tell the story about 
that man who was born blind. And the disciples said, Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born this way? And nobody sinned. It just happened so that glory God could be revealed. And he healed that man that had been born blind. But it was the Sabbath, and he was carrying his bed, and he got in trouble. Who told you to carry your bed? Well, I guess it was a, I didn't see him. Didn't get a good look at him. Was that Jesus guy? He's a sinner. He's wrong. You shouldn't do that. And the guy said, "Well, I don't know." He said, "We want you to. We want you to confess that this man's a sinner for having told you to carry something on the Sabbath." And he looks at him in John nine twenty five. He's completely illiterate, completely ignorant. He's never read the Torah. He's never seen the Torah. He doesn't know. But he looks at him just real simple honesty. Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. But here's what I do know. I was once blind, and now I can see. That much I can tell you. And friends, don't worry about the arguments. Don't worry about trying to convince. Don't worry about trying to demand that everybody agree with you. Just give them this one simple thing. Would you just go home and tell? Your friends, just go tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. How He has had mercy on you. Wouldn't it be fascinating if, just like with this man, the people who hear it come back and it says everyone marveled. Because we just tell them, this is what Jesus has done for me. Let's pray. Father, in all of the inadequacy, in all of the, I would have done that so much better, in all of the, this guy needed to have better arguments, thank you that you always move in with the simplicity and the power of the gospel. Father, thank you. Thank you that the seed, though slow growing, grows. And thank you that, although it seems really small, we've labored so long here. We've prayed so much for ourselves and for those around us, and there seems to be so little progress that the mustard seed is still growing. Thank you, Father, that you have power to calm the storm. Even the storm in my mind of that worry, that fear, that statement that just keeps going over and over and over. You can calm that. And God, thank you that the change you bring to our lives, all that, all that you tell us to do is just tell folks what the Lord's done for you, how he had mercy on you. God, please help us to point people to Jesus, to point people to Jesus well, and to leave with you the growth of the seed and the fruit that it bears. 